Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The wind is gone. I'm from myself. Welcome to The Deconstructionist. I'm your podcast host. I am John Williamson. And uh, we are getting down to the end of this season. So this is part two of my interview with Sarah Stancorp. Uh, she's the author of the book Disobedient Women. Uh, it's a culmination of years of reporting on women who use the Internet to call out abuse within their evangelical communities uh, for, for a lot of people who um, just didn't have a voice before. And so uh, extremely important book um, and, and extremely uh, important research and project that, that went into this. So, uh, really had a great conversation with her about it. Um, you can see Sarah's articles and essays that have appeared all over the place, um, including the Washington post magazine, the New York times, Washington post, Vogue, Mary Claire, glamour, O magazine, uh, slate, the guardian, the Atlantic, um, just tons. Uh, she's very, uh, quite the prolific writer, uh, and a wonderful interview. So hopefully you guys enjoy this again, as I mentioned in the first part uh sarah sarah wanted to, to point out that she does uh deal with a vocal disorder so uh, at times it can make it kind of uh a little trickier to hear what she has to say so i uh, tried to give her a little a couple assists there so we tried to amp up the the volume a little bit so that hopefully you can hear it a little bit better but might just have to concentrate a little harder and uh, also working on trying to get the transcripts up on the website so uh, if you want to follow along in written form, then you can do so as well. And in general, uh, we've been working on trying to get transcripts put together um, as that's something that people have asked for for years. And we just didn't have the technology uh, then, but we do now. So uh, we'll hopefully have that up there as well. Beyond that, uh, go to our website, www.thedeconstructionistsplural.com uh, uh, with an S on the end there. And so uh, if you go there, you can find links to our social media. You can find links to our brand new web store with all sorts of new designs and options and uh, international shipping now. So if you're listening from somewhere outside of the U.S., guess what? You can order stuff now. So uh, if you want to support us that way, that's on there. Links to our Patreon, uh, links to our blog, and also uh, you can stream for free every single uh, prior episode uh, of this podcast, over 170 episodes uh, for free directly from the website. You just have to hit play. So if you're a technology challenge like my father, uh, then this is for you. <laughs> so, uh, so you can check that out. But otherwise, uh, we'll be back with, I believe, one more episode. So got one more in the can, uh, one or two, depends. Uh, I have to look and see how long the episode is. Uh, so least one more episode and then uh, take a, a short break uh, as I work on another project for this podcast. Uh, and then hopefully we'll have more news very, very soon for you on that. So thank you so much for listening. Appreciate all the support from all the listeners out there. Uh, you know, you keep me energized and keep me going. So uh, happy 2024. And uh, without further ado, I give you Sarah freaking Stan Corb. To my surprise. I can't ex-
accept that it was all just a lie. Do you believe in hope? I am hopeless. Yeah, as a parent, we call that the illusion of choice. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's like yes. we make you think you have yes. a choice, but really they're all pre approved options. So. Yes, when I learned with my first kid. Instead of saying, do you want to wear a shirt, which is always a no, <laughs> do you want to wear the blue shirt or the green shirt? Oh, well, now there yeah. you go. <laughs> I've limited your options. You feel like you have exerted your will, and now we can move on to maybe wearing yes, pants. Yes. <laughs> Moves things along a lot quicker, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. It's very, yeah. very true. Um one of the interesting things is you talk a lot about there are um, it's not just these stories. It's, it's so like com- the layers are so complex, like in the sense that it's not just like a leader. It's not just like a pastor um, who's exerting kind of their influence, but like their magazines, you know, there there's, like I said, a lot of multiple layers. And you talk about um, something called the patriarch magazine. And I'm like, what they have a magazine. That's insane. Um <laughs> But like this notion that where they are communicating this message that um, women are to make babies because they are arrows uh, to help God in this fight, this holy war uh, to take over uh, America. And that um, there's a quote in there where you say that they believe that in 40 years, 90 percent of America will be Christian. And I thought, how's that going? (laughs) Yeah, so that's Mary Pride, which it's been interesting. I've been kind of just snapshotting little quotes from the book and posting on Instagram and TikTok. That's a different story. But um, just these ideas from Mary Pride, I'm hearing from people who grew up in quiverful families and they remember their mothers reading these books from Mary Pride because she was so highly regarded, especially within Christian homeschooling families. She made the catalog back before the internet. She made the catalog where you could find a homeschool curriculum. You could join associations that would advocate for homeschool families. She was the resource. So then she would also write these books, giving reproductive advice. And she would tell you how to raise your children. And she had these wild suppositions about how we, we as Christian mothers can increase the birth rate of Christians. Never any question that they may deconvert, but that through your womb, we can essentially take control of this country. Um, and that's, you know, that's the sort of thing we're now hearing from um, extremist communities and reading that um, decades back, it, there were moments like that figure that were very chilling because it's definitely still here. Um, and it starts with a twisted resource. And I, I think it's, it was also important for me to include figures like Mary Pride because it's sure, this is a system where men have a lot of authority. And holding on to the authority can result in abuse, it can result in cover-ups, it can maintain that authority. 
but you also have women who are in service of these systems and who help keep the other women in line and interested in being there and feeling like they're contributing. And it's it's not the patriarchy that's only um, only maintained by men. It's the women definitely have part in. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and you talk about some techniques that they use to um, keep women in this this submissive uh, role. And you talk about this horrific story about um, Ashley. Uh, you talk about uh, with her childhood and growing up with her grandfather, who you know some perceived slight or misbehavior. He like locks her in a basement bedroom and like keeps her there for hours and hours until. Uh, I think the term is like will breaking or something like that. And this was a technique that was commonly employed to keep women in this sort of submissive role. Yeah, and just children. I mean, the, the will breaking was children in general. Um, and it's, it's interesting that from his perspective, from what Ashley told me, it's a story that has come up over time. Like it's one of those family stories you repeat when everyone is together. So it was like understood as a good thing that this had happened. Like, it was, you know, she was just, she had been so wild and, you know, spirited. Um, look what I've done, look how I helped. And this is, you know, a formative traumatic memory for her is just it passed it's invisible to um the, the experience of being the person that needs submissive you don't have often you don't have the voice to say all of this hurts all of this because your part of being submissive is not speaking up yeah and it's it's um it's unbelievable. As someone who's a huge proponent of therapy, um, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder, I'm like reading these stories that these women are brave enough to tell that are absolutely horrific. And, uh, in some cases like straight up child abuse. And I think to myself, like, gosh, like how many years of therapy must these poor women be in who have suffered these things that will probably stick with them the rest of their lives. Like that is no small amount of trauma. That is absolutely horrific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrific. Yeah. So I mean, so Krista Brown, who some people may know, she was one of the leading advocates calling for some sort of recognition to the abuse crisis within the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but when she first stepped forward in her 50s, which is actually 52, is the common age for people to finally speak up and recognize child sexual abuse. It's, it's something people just carry um, anyway. But um, for Krista, when she first stepped forward, she had learned that SBC would pay for therapy to restore an abusive pastor. So all she was really asking for was enough money to pay for therapy at the same amount of time 
as they would give to an abusive pastor. Um, and she also wanted a like, meditation garden, just something, some small recognition. And absolutely not. Um, that became too much to ask. And in some ways, as if not for that initial battle, what it turned into, and what she learned from it, which was that her local state convention kept the list of incredibly abused pastors. And they wouldn't make a public. When Krista learned that, she wrote a letter to the editor. And from that point on, that's when people started pouring into her, saying, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. And that's why she ended up documenting of to 172 cases just based on public record. Um, and then she finally needed to take a break. Um, but all of that stemmed from, really, she just needed some help. She just needed some help. And there are moments when you hear a story like that, when I wonder, you know, if they just given her therapy, she wouldn't have been in this position to learn all that she did. Where, where would SBC be now if they had just made that small concession? And maybe we wouldn't know the scope. So it's it's this mixed, mixed result where because they were so horrible to Krista Brown and because this became the fight of her life, eventually, at least the Houston Chronicle, I suppose, say, and story after story, and I put solutions in the historical investigation. And now we're starting to see how vast the scope of abuse is within SBC. Yeah, and that seems to be like sort of a common thread. Um, we could go very, we could spend an entire extra hour on uh, Bill Gothard in that part of the book, but um but that's just, I mean, he's just a, a statistic at this point, you know, like he is just another example of what we see in many, many other cases where there is a person in a position of power who is out of one side of his mouth preaching, you know, like, like so often like it's like ironic uh, and obviously very hypocritical, like they're almost obsessed about the sex lives of women and abstaining and being pure and all these things. And then behind the scenes, they're absolutely completely taking uh, advantage of their power position to at the very least sexually harass uh, women under their leadership. And then in the end, you know, when it becomes public and in this case, like you said uh, earlier through, through, God, you know, thank God there was the internet at this point through, uh, in this case, a website, victims were able to come forward and, and say, Hey, like, no, this happened to me also. But then in the end, the, uh, the board, I think it was the, the board, right. Of the, um, of his organization comes forward and doesn't even initially accept his re resignation. They're like, well, let's wait to see how this plays out, you know? And then eventually they accept his resignation, but even then they don't really, there there really isn't the, the sense of like justice that you would expect. They're like, well, you can kind of stay on unofficially 
but like you can't really pastor. And then uh, even earlier than that, they clearly knew something was going on because behind the scenes they're like, maybe you shouldn't have female assistants. Maybe that's not a good idea. Like you clearly know what's going on, you know? <laughs> uh, well, and even so one of the women who stepped forward in the book who hadn't been published before, she's there under pseudonym, but she was his personal secretary who he plucked out of one of uh, the training centers. And she was 14. I mean, if you were on the board of an organization with a man who had a 14-year-old personal secretary, from what she tells me without much secretarial skill, who he stayed late in the office with, um, who he sometimes would visit in her room, at night, when she was in her nightgown, uh, either you're completely absent or you're looking the other way. Um, there's just no other formulation in my mind that is logical. Um, in that, that case, and a lot of these are very dissatisfying. You don't end with, and then it went to jail. Instead, you have Gothard, who still has kind of quasi-ministries-ish like on a website, his Facebook page. But you also still have people who insist he did nothing wrong, despite the legions who have come out to state, yes, yes, he got me alone, he made me pray, he touched me inappropriately, he took his shoes off, he ran his feet all over my legs. It's just the consistency in these stories is staggering. Um, and, and with what, wait, you said something um, that made me think of this. Gothard, when he was at his height, wrote books, he gave lectures, he hosted conferences. He created a lot of rules for people to live by. He would not approve of by listening to heavy metal, for sure. Um, but he also um, would give guidance on every bit of your attire. And so here's how a woman should look. Here's how she should have her hair. Here's how makeup should be if you have it. You should look natural. Here's how you should not draw attention to your chest with the clothing. On and on and on. What struck me is very interesting because consistently in my reporting, there are these young women who are teenagers when he found them and invited him to come work for him. They, there was a type, and it was known, it was something people talked about. Jill Duggar in her book references like the Gother Girls. And it was as if, this, if you can imagine someone with a predatory nature who had the ability to get people to conform to their own case, that's a level of grooming that is astounding. And then to be able to point people out and have young people, children, teens, and have their parents trust you to have them come live at your headquarters and see it as a gift from God. That's um hearing that sort of story over and over that can be pretty chilling. Yeah, I, I can't imagine uh, having to 
gather up all these stories and read, you know, case after case after case after case where you're you're seeing the same thing and like and yet nothing's done. I would you know say like if if this person had been in any other job, if they were you know a uh, uh, actor or a teacher or a comedian or whatever, they would have been canceled and put in jail years ago. But for some odd reason, we turned a blind eye because oh they've got the ear of the Lord. I'm like well, they're also human. Yeah, or human resources. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's really difficult. And then, I mean, then there's also like, which I couldn't even get into, but the financial exploitation of calling these things internships, where because people are too young to be working illegally, you know, they end up 50 bucks here or there, but they're working more than full time for you. Um, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. I, I do remember where you mentioned that, yeah, you'd hand her a 20 every once in a while. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and to think that's the, that's the least of the worst things that, that had happened, um, in that, in that situation. Um, one of the other things that I thought was interesting too, and, you, and we've kind of talked about touched on this a little bit in the podcast before, but um, just what kind of set the stage for these, this kind of structure, which really at the end of the day seems to come down to, um, this patriarchal, um, desire to maintain a certain level of power. And it really seems to have more to do with power and identity politics than anything else. Um, and you kind of mentioned the fact that, you know, conservative politics in the seventies and eighties, um, sort of aligned itself with conservative Christianity in order to sort of wage this war against uh, certain issues like abortion and race and science and LGBTQ plus community and these sorts of things that sort of really kind of created this environment for this type of like, um, I'll say twisted version of Christianity that th has thrived specifically in, in North America to even exist and thrive. Yeah, uh, so, and I I will talk about that. What struck me, and it's related to building up the Christian right, um, within that sphere, a lot of where the power comes from is like this buddy system or this endorsement system where people in higher leadership positions, people who can bring in large numbers of votes, who have that influence, there's a, a dynamic of influence swapping that then like kind of like lifts all ships. So if I if I um, endorse you politically, then you can get the laws passed that I want. Like that's just how things work. But also that I will bring in my fellow like kind of political leaders will go to your prayer practice, will rub shoulders with these other ministers who are often coming, that they'll be able to say that they know these particular political figures, like the Huckabee, Sarah Palin, these are folks that went to build authors' um, conferences. Like, it, it, it's all a mess. But I also see that in the way that just the ministries themselves learn to prop one another up. So even this is just looking within Vision Forum, which is a ministry that's shared by the head of 
but they had these um, catalogs where you could find books encouraging Christian patriarchies, stay at home daughter, who equivocal, all of that. And the endorsements, you, have, you know, one to the other back and forth, which then creates this idea of uh, authority because the minister that I respect respects this other minister. And you create these new both celebrities within evangelical Christianity. And that celebrity, I think, is that this is me theorizing, but I think that's an important part of how this authority and abuse structure works. Because you end up with a lot of people in very influential positions who got there by who they know, which means the, the people they owe and the people they have to protect. And you also are in a position of authority that maybe you're not totally qualified for. Maybe you haven't gone to seminary, maybe you don't know your Greek, but you're respected and you're influential and people will come see you in a conference and buy your DVD. And I think that makes, it, it would be natural for a person in that position to feel a little extra defensive because even if they have the biggest CEO in the world somewhere, they have to recognize that they are celebrity and they're being in this upper echelon is still upon sand. And so when that is threatened, that to me explains why people get so brutally defensive when someone questions or when someone comes forward with a story about abuse. Because if I can poke a hole in your authority over all of us, what, what else is there for you to stand on? Um, which I, I think it's in many ways it's a lesson learned from how the Christian right was able to establish itself. It's that, that, that on that particular sort of network that when you overlay it and then make it exclusively penetrate, um, it, it can be very dangerous. Yeah, oh gosh. Um, yes, it does. Sense? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of got no, a hole there, but so. that's just, these are things I think about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, I mean, your book was it was incredibly thought provoking. I found myself kind of my my brain moving off in multiple different directions um, based on different things that you talk about in the book, and it just got me thinking about you know a, a lot of different things. And um, one of the things is that obviously this is this is not a new movement in terms of sort of trying to expose this abuse. Um, this is definitely not something new, sadly, um, but. As you said, you know, there are things like uh, the Internet that have, have helped uh, sort of shine a spotlight on it and I think are, are forcing us as a society to acknowledge its existence in a way that maybe we couldn't before. And, and, and it forces us to deal with it, you know, whereas before, as you said, you know, probably before the Internet, um, there were probably countless stories like this that were more easily swept under the rug. But now uh, things like your book and these websites um, and, and uh, social media and these things, these platforms that people have where they can share these stories instantaneously and, and put it in front of a, a countless number of people, you know, an infinite audience. Um, what, what is your hope? Like, you know, coming out of this book and writing this book and putting these stories out there, 
Um, what do you see coming out of this going forward? Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm starting to get like reader response, which is interesting. I recognize that I wrote a hard book, and I even encourage people in the intro to take their time, and people are. So, I'm like, from survivors who took a month and a half or so to read the book, and it's triggering. And it also makes them feel seen. So I think my first goal is just for people to know someone has seen all of this. I just want people to bear witness to it. My second hope, um, and it goes two directions, I am working with an American Baptist pastor in my town to do an event about the book and bring in the clergy. And when we have them or about this book, he said, what do you want to do? I said, let's train them. So we're bringing in Grace and they're going to do an introductory training on how to keep your congregation safe. So I want to be involved in just encouraging clergy to understand like you have responsibility here and you you can deploy that, you can be part of the solution. On the other side, I'm hoping to spotlight folks like in, in Ohio, Representative Jessica Miranda, who's pushing legislation to extend the statute of limitations for child-sexual abuse. Um, as you saw throughout the book, very often the um, statute of limitations just was a a roadblock that could not be passed in getting justice for people who it takes quite a while to confront what they dealt with as kids. So I think if I if the book can be a vehicle for people to know we know you're there and then also maybe change some churches and change some laws, uh, that's that's what I'd like to do. Yeah. And and, and the other thing I think of too is is um from the perspective of uh, someone who's a guy, clearly. And uh, um, I, I think it's easy to, f- from the perspective of, of, of being a guy, is to think, well, these stories are about women. And surely I, I can't possibly understand what it's like to go through that experience. I'm not a woman. I never will be. And I, I don't know. I don't know what it's like. I can imagine what it's like. But I think guys have a massive role to play in this, in the sense that, um, when we see these things happen, we've got to hold our other guys accountable. And, uh, you know, I, I think back to the story we talked about earlier, where there's this entire board, presumably of men who's just sort of let it slide. Yeah. And they're in a position to do something and say, no, this isn't okay. This is not acceptable behavior by our fellow man here. Um, and and it shouldn't take, you know, having a daughter, for example, you know, to say, I would never want that to happen to my daughter. Like the humanity within you should be enough to say, this isn't right. This is not loving. This is not what Jesus wanted. Um, and, and we need to stand up, uh, you know, and, and speak out and support our sisters and our mothers and, you know, and pr- make sure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again, because this is abuse. It's abuse. 
and and yeah. and and something else around mm. this too. Yes. Yeah. Which. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think, so, I, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. One, yeah. There are male survivors, yeah. too, and especially in evangelicalism, it's been the women who are the support first, um, and I think there's a whole lot of other baggage stemming from the form of faith they were raised with that makes it sometimes even more difficult for men to step up and say this happened in so this is this is a cause that the oh the people at the forefront of advocacy have been women. It's in service to everyone. Yeah, oh, gosh, there's there's so many different psychological aspects to that that we didn't even get into. You know, like the the notion that um, so many of us were raised to think that to be a to be a man means to never show your feelings or show let you know supposed weakness and all these things and. Uh, and, and that's had a lasting impact, generational impact on the way that we handle situations like this to um, our own mental health and admitting when we need help and uh, allowing ourselves to, to express feelings and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Well, I, I really um, I appreciate you coming on the show. The book is fantastic. Um, Again, I think, you know, anything that helps shine a light on, on situations like this that hopefully help uh, move people uh, to start um, giving a safe space uh, to victims and, and providing resources like you talk about. It kills me to hear that anyone wasn't provided with the mental health, uh, mental resources, mental health resources that they that they're asking for um, uh, is just devastating. Like we got to do better. And, uh, I appreciate this book. So again, it's disobedient women, how a small group of faithful women exposed abuse, brought down powerful pastors and ignited an evangelical reckoning. Sarah Stancorp, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. seminary, married, found a church he could go Made a living, giving, dying folks a shoulder and a hand Until he told his leaders that he had some feelings for another man And they said, John, you must go and take your broken heart Spend a 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.